All right, kids, you're off to class. Um, theologians, you're ready to open up to Luke chapter 12. And uh, pull out your handout if it's helpful to jot some notes down. And we will, uh, we will get to it in one second. <clears throat> so Jesus has been teaching his, his disciples what it means to live well in life. How to be truly happy. And if you boil it down, it's follow me. That's really, that's really what Jesus is great at. He's great at taking complex things and boiling it down uh, to some things. This is the blessed lifestyle that Jesus calls us to. I want to show you a couple of key passages that are actually just super exciting. In Matthew chapter 7, it says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Familiar passage, right? We talk a lot, as we've gone through Luke, we've talked a lot about it's hearing and doing who will be blessed. So that 50% is an F. Like you, you, fought, you, you, you fail if you just do for God without hearing what he says. You fail if you just hear what he says but never put it into practice. Those who hear and do are the ones who build on the rock. Those are the ones who are blessed. And then in Matthew chapter 28, 20, it says this. Make disciples teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Let me tell you what's really exciting about this. What the Christian message is, what the Bible teaches us, is that it must be possible to actually hear the words of Jesus and to actually do what he tells us to do. Furthermore, it must be actually possible to teach these things, and it must be actually possible to learn these things. Now this is, when you look at it, wildly exciting to think about and incredibly daunting. If you keep reading in the Matthew 28 passage, you read these words, I am with you always. That's what makes this wildly exciting and incredibly daunting, but actually doable. If you are new or relatively new to this church, let me tell you the kind of church family you have wandered into. You have wandered into a church family that actually is looking to live the way that God tells us to live. We are walking by faith. We are growing a little bit more every day, but we are actually trying to live this out. We are actually seeking to hear what God would say. As such, we don't only study the words of God, but we study the ways of God. What did Jesus say, but what did he also do? We're in the middle of the gospel of Luke. Luke is one of four gospel writers who are writing an account of Jesus's life. So that the followers of Jesus, all these centuries later, can continue to be taught by our master. We've, we've called this the good doctor, because Luke was a doctor, so it's a little bit of play on that. But that Jesus really is the good doctor. And like with any doctor you ever visit, it requires two things to benefit from their wisdom and their treatment program. It involves a decision. And it involves faith. Every doctor you ever go to has required faith. There have been gaps in knowledge. You've done your research. It's not a blind faith, but it requires faith to be treated by a doctor, does it not? And it requires a decision. It doesn't just happen to you. You decide to be treated by a doctor. Here's what Jesus is telling us this morning. This is so powerful, and I hope we get this. Jesus says... That you can walk free from the enslaving power of wealth, and you can walk free from the suffocating, debilitating power of anxiety and worry. That's what the text brings to us today, that this is actually possible to accomplish. Last week in the previous section, we looked at something called the don't list. And in the don't let list, Jesus was warning his disciples. He was, he was doing discipleship, warning them about hypocrisy and worrying about fear, particularly from other people because they claimed the name of Jesus. 
It emphasized negatively something that we have stated positively for our community groups theme this year. What is our theme this year? Our theme this year for community groups is known. Jesus is warning against hiding, faking, keeping the outside of the cup clean while neglecting to deal with the inside and hiding behind the mask, which is what a hypocrite literally was. So if you state this positively, it's know one another and be known by God and by other people. Remember what he said last week about, about hiding from God? Not only is it unhealthy because you so nurture the outside, you so manage your social media presence, whatever it might be, that you actually neglect, like you don't have energy left to develop the real you. So not only is it unhealthy, it's actually also you are unable to do it. God is the ever-present witness. God is also the judge to whom one day we'll give an account for our life. So Jesus just says, lay it down. Don't do it. Today, his discipleship continues with greed and worry. We're going to get to the text in just a minute, but this title image, let me, let me walk you through a couple of things. Uh, I called it Walk Free because our life in Christ is described as a walk, right? It's a journey. We're on a, we're on a straight and narrow path. We're not on a wide road. We have to take life day at a time. We are on a walk. And we're able to walk free from wealth and worry in a way unique to all people who don't live a life in God. But the decision to walk free is both a one-time decision and an ongoing decision. If you are married, you made a one-time decision. They're called your vows on your wedding day. Right? For better, for worse, in sickness and in health, you made a decision on that day. In many ways, that's the easy part, right? Saying a few words for a split second of time, easy. It's much harder, and what builds a good marriage is what? Deciding every single day that you wake up that you're married, that you're going to walk in this thing. So walk free of wealth and worry is a one-time decision. Jesus, I choose to follow you. I lay down the, the binds of wealth and worry. I trust you. You're my Lord, you're my master. That's your vows, but it's also a daily thing to be living out. So remember, it's a one-time decision and an ongoing decision, kind of like marriage. The other thing is this, that wealth and worry have the ability, have the power, have a unique power to warp your life. When you have something that's warped or distorted, it's still there. It's just distorted. It's not as useful as it could be. It's diminished in some way. Finally, wealth and worry have the ability to enslave you. There's children in the picture because of this. Children, in some ways, teach us a lot and are ahead of us from the binds of wealth and possessions, thinking that that's what our life is made of. Hear me really clearly. Every single one of these cute, adorable children that are running around here are born in sin. Well, that's kind of harsh, Dave. I know, but it's true. When you get your little baby, if I come visit you, I probably won't say this, but if I get your little baby and I'm holding it on day one, I am holding a little baby sinner. Isn't that weird? Like, we just think that's wrong. Well, how dare you say that? They are born in sin. Those of you who have toddlers, those of you who have elementary age, middle schoolers, high schoolers, teenagers, adult children living in your home, adult children living far away from you, you know this to be true. So children might lead the way in this. We actually can learn a lot from them. But children, uh, children do have a sense of childlike release of, of wealth being this enslaving thing and the crushing burden of worry. Isn't it true that the more we go through life, the more sin that you've seen and experienced, the more you've perpetrated to others and had perpetrated to you, there's, there's the ability to build paranoia, worry that's, that's absolutely enslaving to you. Because you know all that can go wrong. So, so we look to children not as the idealized, they don't have any struggles with wanting possessions and being greedy. Come to my house. It's there. But they, but they lead us. There's things we can learn from them. All right. Let me read. Uh, starting in chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And, and I'm going to read this account. We're going to break this into two sections. Wealth and worry. So Jesus starts with wealth. Walk free of the warp of wealth 
by keeping in step with the Spirit. Look at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Your life is not in the abundance of your possessions. Your life is not in the abundance of your bank account. Look at the request, first of all. A nameless man heirs the family business from a crowd. Remember, shame and honor in this culture, as it is in many cultures today, the the worst possible thing you could do to an enemy is to shame them. If you want to rub salt in the wombs, shame them publicly. So in a crowd, this guy airs the family business, right? There's probably been a death in the family, and so there's an inheritance that needs to be divided, and they're fighting. Now again, does this ring true today that, that family members would, would fight over the inheritance? It, there's this weird myth that says that ancient people are ancient people, and we've evolved so much that we don't struggle with the same things. This passage reads like it was written yesterday. So here's a person, shame on you, brother. That's what he's saying. Shame on my brother. And he's bringing the request to Jesus. Now that's not so odd in this situation because rabbis would have been the kinds of people that you would bring this request to. And they would be the arbitrator. It's a little bit of ironic that he says, who made me judge over you? He's the judge of the entire universe. So what's Jesus doing? Think about this. Jesus just taught about prayer to his disciples. And amongst other things, here's how he taught his disciples to pray. Ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking. When you see this guy a few verses later come and make a request of Jesus to the right person, he's doing the exact thing Jesus just said to pray. So why on earth does Jesus not honor his request. He shuts him down. Here's what I think we can gather from that. Prayer is not formula. Prayer is not, if I pray this in Jesus' name, he has to be like Will Smith or Robin Williams or whatever genie is going to be cast next. He has to do it. Because I rubbed the lamp, I said, I wish, and Jesus has to do it. I prayed it in Jesus' name. I prayed at the beginning, our Father who art in heaven. I bookended it. I did the right thing. Why does Jesus not honor the request? Why does he go in a totally different direction? That's a real question if anyone wants to answer. If not, I'll, I've been pondering this a while. Any thoughts? Why does he shut the man down when he, he just got done saying, ask? His motivation? Yeah. To, to teach him further. So, so in the request, the request sounds like a request for justice, right? Fairness. But in the request, I think what Jesus sees, Jesus is the good doctor. He diagnoses something completely different that's ailing the guy. Your problem is not injustice. Your problem is the pervasive sin of covetousness. Greed has a stranglehold on the hearer. So what Jesus does with that is actually really, really powerful. The man asks for justice. Jesus cuts through the address 
and discerns covetousness. So he says, be on your guard from all kinds of greed. Your life is more than possessions and money. I want you to take note of something. We are to know well the schemes of the devil. We're to understand what the enemy is trying to do. The enemy of your soul is called in scripture the angel of light. Well, what's that all about? The idea is that Satan will disguise himself as something good. Think about Jesus in the wilderness. Wasn't every temptation of Jesus wrapped in a pretty bow of scripture? Jesus cuts through it and sees through it. I think the people of God are, are sometimes safe from doing the egregious, obvious sins. No one in our community is going to go along with it. We have black and white scripture that says, do not do this. So we're like, okay, we won't do that. You know what the people of God are, are duped by most often? They are duped by, by going after something, by falling into a sin that actually is good. Answer me this, is justice good? Yes. Isn't God a God of justice? Absolutely. The Bible's chock full of justice being good. How about, how about impartiality and fairness? That's actually a sin. Read, read the book of James. We are not to be partial to one another. Fairness and justice, man, these are good things. I think Christians are particularly good at, at being tempted into a certain cause or a certain idea or going after a thing and rallying all the church folk and saying, hey, let's get after this. And pretty soon there's pitchforks and there's, uh, you know, torches, right? And you're, you're chasing after this thing. Jesus is no dummy. Jesus isn't a genie that you just rub. It says in Jesus' name, it's like, well, the guy said, I've got a, I've got, I'm, a, I'm a God of justice. He shuts that down and he calls out greed. But watch what Jesus does. He's so gracious with how he handles this. Jesus has all these different ways that he could go with this. And here's the mastery of it. Here's the love and gracious and truthness of it. Ready? The guy puts a request out. It's shaming to his brother. Jesus doesn't say, shame on you for shaming other people. Right? That would be a nuclear bomb. <laughs> Toast the guy. That's what would happen. Instead, what does Jesus do? He invites him into a story. He not only invites the man into the story, in an ingenious teaching way, he invites those who are listening in into a story. And through the miracle of how God decided to preserve things, he invites us in this room today into a story. One of Jesus' all-time favorite ways, just by sheer volume, of teaching and instructing and discipleship programs is story. Parables. Parables make things harder, not easier. Parables require the participant to engage or else they miss it completely. So here's the question. Jesus, Jesus doesn't divide the inheritance. He gives this warning, then he invites in deeper with the story. Here's the question from the man. Is the man going to see in himself a barn terror downer that's too small and one who's building bigger barns or not here's the dignity that a story offers in this public setting like this the dignity is this when you tell a story and you invite to go deeper, Karen, you made the mention that, that Jesus wanted to take him deeper into something more thorough, into the real heart of the issue. Buddy, your problem is not injustice. It's not that you were wronged in the will. You're greedy. But here's what he does. He offers the story. The man is invited to participate in it, if he participates it, if he gets inside the story and uses his redeemed imagination, he can see, man, that's me. But he can also walk free and maintain his dignity. Behold, I stand at the door and tell stories. Whoever opens the door to me and eats with me, you're going to live for all of eternity. But guess what? You can also walk right by. I'll knock. I'll be there, but it's your choice to open the door or not. 
Every time you read a parable, watch, just watch for all this surrounding stuff. Watch for how he works in our own life. He is offering the bread of life. He is offering a rich meal to this man, which will change his life. You know what he's not doing? He doesn't get him in a headlock and cram food down his throat. This is not how God works. So don't look for this in yourself, and don't do this to those in your life. Let God be God. All right. Uh, Eugene Peterson has this great quote. He says this, The truth of God is not an alien invasion, but a loving courtship. God honors his image bearers. He says, you have a choice in this matter. I'm not the doctor who's going to pin you down and force treatment on you. All right, here's the story. There once was a rich farmer who had really fertile land. We know there's a way to live stingy toward God. If they had a chorus that they sang over and over, it would be eat, drink, and be merry. That's their mantra. That is the mantra for someone living for this life. Barn building in our minds might be a little bit of a stretch. So let me just translate it a little bit. Storage units. Right? Man, I, I've got I've to I've start paying to store more of my stuff. Let me press a little bit further and raise some questions in your mind and maybe get a few glances back. Ready? 401k. Retirement plans. Storing up finances Storing up stuff. This is the equivalent of grain. This is the equivalent of what, a, of what a harvest would produce. God has blessed this farmer and he's taking energy to tear down what's already there, to build more, to store more. Okay, so that's, that's the picture. How on earth do we get to a place where we have so much stuff that, that we, we have to dream up energy. We, we take energy away from doing other things to dream up ways to, to shelter it from taxes over here or, or to actually store physical stuff that we have. Here's a, here's a couple thoughts that I came up with. One is this. If we don't ever define enough, then what happens is we, we just keep accumulating. It's always that idea like, I'll have enough after one more dollar. I'll have enough... After one more thing. So we keep spending to what we have. Now, all kinds of studies have shown, don't ever snack directly from a bag. Why? Because you just don't stop, right? They've actually done studies that if your dinner plate is this big, or your dinner plate is this big, you will eat to the size of your plate. Not me. I bet it's true. I mean, all the studies show this. It's called portion control, right? How about packing? They've also done studies to say, if you have a suitcase this big, how much stuff will you bring? Enough stuff that fits in a suitcase this big. Now I'm really stepping on toes. Uh, Some of you are able to pack. Just go buy yourself a suitcase this big. Guess what? You will pack to the size of your suitcase. So if we don't ever define enough, what happens is we will just be eating Cheetos from the bag, right? We will just eat eat right from the Ben and Jerry's thing. Like that, they're smart. They, they know why they're putting it in a, in a, in a pint size. This, yes, I know the size of Ben and Jerry's. Thank you very much. So, so we never define enough, and that, that's how we get here. We also climatize our stuff and our spending to those around us rather than just keeping our eyes on Jesus. Some of you have traveled, and when you travel, you come back from a place, and you're like, man, I got a lot of stuff. I've got a lot of clothes. I've got a lot of toys. I've got a lot of whatever. Because you've been to a place where they, they don't have that surplus. So we as community creatures, we tend to climatize. We, we tend to sort of look around and be like, yeah, I got less stuff than my neighbor. I'm doing good. Mind you, we just live in a mind-boggling wealthy place, affluent place. Guys, we live in such a dangerous valley. I've grown up here. I love this valley. I call this place my home. We live in an incredibly dangerous valley. Because we live in a, in a, in a, in a city, in a region, that is defining itself by possessions and by money. The very thing Jesus said 
not to do. We live in a consumer society where when something breaks, I was at Starbucks this morning with my nine-year-olds just kind of looking things over and whatever. You know, you can't help but hear sometimes what's happening next to you. These two guys are talking, they're arguing about Trump, they're doing all kinds of stuff, but here's what came out of their mouth. And if I didn't have time, if if I had time, I would have engaged them. This one guy said this, he said, you know, yeah, we buy stuff, we use it for less than five years, we landfill it, and we buy some more. How long can this go on? I'm like, that's the sermon! Can, like, can I just quote, what's your name? I'm just going to quote you on that. I mean, that, that really is the sermon. That's where they landed. A couple more things. We're born with greed. Let me, let me ask you what, what all these have in common. Get rich, quick schemes, pyramid schemes, that prince in an African nation who needs your help and reaches out to you via email, right? All of these have one thing in common. They, they, they need greed to succeed. We're born with greed. These all go away if we're not greedy people. They just don't happen. But they happen because greed is everywhere. Finally, we lose track of time. Next time someone sneezes around you, you can say God bless you, you can say Gazunheit, you can say whatever you want, but, but think about this. Think about the fact that there are particles from that sneeze, which you ever saw it, it'd be kind of grossed out, it goes pretty far, but that sneeze is your life. The Bible says your life is a mist. I see it, now I don't. God bless you, there goes my life. Like that's how we ought to look at it. Time is short, and because we think time isn't short, because we don't think our life's going to be required from us tonight, we live a certain way, don't we? Storing up for a rainy day. God blesses and spills over onto us and gives us what we need. And he not only blesses us, he blesses through us. This is God's way. Go back to Abraham. Abraham is blessed with many descendants. Israel is blessed as a nation. Jesus comes along and is blessed. The disciples are blessed. The apostles and early church pastors are blessed. The church today are blessed. Christians are blessed. All so that Your needs will be met, and you will have more than enough, so it will spill over and bless those around you. I'm going to bless you, nation of Israel, so that you will be a blessing to the nations. This is the way God has always worked through all of Scripture. This is the way God continues to work. It is is His way. I wonder if we were in that scene where Jesus is feeding the 5,000, I mean, if you don't get this lesson Jesus is talking about and you're one of the disciples and you're focused on me, Jesus starts handing out lunch, you're like, yummy, I'm famished. You get done eating, he keeps handing out. You're like, where did that come from? Well, never mind. You start looking for doggy bags. You're putting it away. He keeps handing it out. You invent the refrigerator. So that you can store this fish because it's going to go bad. You tell Jesus, Jesus, I'm stopped. You can stop now. He keeps giving it to you. You build a better refrigerator. Like, that's not the picture, right? Jesus blesses so that you can be a blessing to others. He blesses us and he blesses through us. Wealth isn't wrong. It just needs to be safeguarded because it warps you can dream up all kinds of things like i can but i thought about relationships how much does wealth warp our relationships how much has wealth warped our priorities and our goals how much has wealth warped our vision it's distorted it's like a distorted lens we all know milk goes bad right so we keep milk cold We all know that brake fluid has a corrosive element to it, so we're really careful not to spill, and when we do spill on our car paint, we wipe it up really quick. We have safeguards for brake fluid. We have safeguards for milk. We handle both of those with care. So it is with with wealth. Wealth has this way of going bad. We get it. 
if we don't safeguard how we store it and how we steward it and how we use it, has a way of souring. Wealth also has this way of corroding something really good. The things wealth touches, is brake fluid good? Yes. Can brake fluid be bad? Yes. So it is with wealth. Wealth has this, this corrosive ability. So we handle with care. We don't make money the ultimate goal. We don't make money the enemy. It is a good thing stewarded by God's people as God sees fit to hand it out to you. Some people pass the test of wealth. Many don't. Listen to this warning. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. You have lived a life, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You know what's powerful about this? This isn't some cranky Old Testament prophet that we can't get our heads around. This is the half-brother of James. This is an early church pastor, James teaching us this principle. So don't make wealth your life. It warps. But that's not all. The good doctor continues with worry. It's pretty interesting, by the way, when you teach through scriptures, you see things paired up next to each other. They're, they're next door to each other. And the tie-ins between themes are with wisdom put together. They're not just sort of randomly put together. Think about how much worry and wealth tie in together. Here's a question for you. You ever hear of someone worrying about money? Yeah, you should be like, yes, like, like, like that's, that's a really common thing. I mean, we worry if we have too much of it. I mean, if you're doing a godly thing, you're like, God, I have a lot of money. Like, what should I be, like, what's the wise stewardship thing with this? We can worry as a godly person. We can worry as an ungodly person. We worry if we don't have enough. We worry if we have just enough. In fact, we worry about whether we just have enough or not. Worry and, worry and wealth just go together like crazy. All right, let's pick up from verse 22. Verse 22, it says this, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barns, yet, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows what, that, that you need them. In, uh, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Your life is not only, not only cons, doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions, your life is not enhanced by worry. In fact, when you look at it, uh, like wealth, worry has this way of warping. Now, let me just say this at the, at the top. One of my community group questions this week is this, for personal reflection. Are you more of a person who struggles with greed are you more of a person who struggles with, with worry? I'll tell you mine. It's worry. I have memorized a lot of passages around anxiety and worry because that's been a challenge for me. That's been something God has been sanctifying me since the age of 17. So I don't stand up here as one who's just landed on the platform above everyone else. I am in the trenches working this out day by day. These were easy to come up with. Ready? Ever look back and wonder why you worried so much? Here's what worry does. Think about all these how worry warps things. That's because worry, conf uh, worry grows little molehills into mountains. You, you ever worry about problems that you can't do anything about? That's because worry confuses you about your role. 
in the situation. You ever worry about things that never take place? That's because worry has this way of distorting your hope for the future. And you ever, you ever miss out on now because of worry? Worry has this way of rotting your peace and contentment in the present. Man, worry will screw up your present, your future, what you have to do today. Worry's a mess. Philippians 4, 6 says this, Do not be anxious about anything. Man, that's a powerful statement. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I think about this passage a lot. What leapt out to me in the context of this sermon was the word guard. That the peace of of God is going to guard your heart. It's going to guard your mind. From what? From worry itself. Because worry warps things. It messes your life up. In fact, there's an odd math when it comes to worry. It can't add a single minute to your life, and yet it can rob you of many, many minutes, leaving you poorer as a person. Disciples live a life of trust and not a life of worry. Think about this. Every single place in your life, in fact, that specific place in life that you are prone to worry, that's the exact place God is inviting you to trust. If you don't know where God wants to to work with, start with that one area, that one person, that one relationship, that one job opportunity, that one question you have, that one fork in the road. You say, I'm worried about it. That's the spot. God is inviting you into a life of trust. If you need proof that he can care for you, open your eyes to what is all around you. The fields are dressed like no other king on the planet. Birds are sustained and watched over. Think about birds for a moment. They are created in God's, uh, they, they, they are created by God, but they aren't created in God's image. They aren't indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They aren't going to one day rule with Christ. Christian, you are. If God will sustain and care for and watch over and provide for the birds, how much more? This is the illustration Jesus is giving. 1 Peter 5 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. That's why you shouldn't worry. Walk free of worry. You are His. He's got you. We have a world full of worry. Isn't that true? I mean, people seek after security. And it's so precarious. That's why it freaks people out when there's some horrific thing on the news, when there's an economic downturn. They're going through life. They go, man, if this one thing goes away, I don't have a way to make income anymore. If this one stock doesn't do well. R.C. Sproul said, we are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. We are taught in the scripture to depend on God, to trust in God, to live a worry-free life in the little things and in the really, really big things. Jesus brings us down to the most basic of necessities. Here's, Here's how I would say it. Trust God for your dinner tonight. And trust God for your eternal soul and the feasting that you'll do in eternity. Isn't it foolish to say, I trust God for my eternity, the really huge things in life. But in these minuscule things, I've got to kind of hold on to that. That's on me. Conversely, it's really foolish to trust God to meet your daily needs here and somehow not trust him in the really huge things. Jesus says, guess what? He's got you in both of them. He's got you in this. Romans 8 touches on this. It says, what should we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the huge things, feasting in heaven. How will he not also with him graciously give us dinner tonight? Something to wear tomorrow. He's got you in the big things and in the really, really small things. One of the things about kids who... 
don't have parents due to abandonment or death is this. They have really overdeveloped street smarts and they have really underdeveloped trust. Their muscle to care for themselves is what they developed to get by this cold reality that no one is looking out for them specifically. If you grow up in an institution, they're looking out for you collectively, but no one specifically is looking out for you. And so this oversense of street smarts, of it's on me, develops in them. Adoption is a huge blessing in that person's life and a huge adjustment in that person's life. Hoarding, sneaking, scheming, self-soothing, these are all regular challenges that a person coming out of an institution into a family struggle with. Trust and change build really, really slowly over time. You know what the daily homework is for adoptive parents and siblings, families welcoming in a child? It's this. It's being faithful and trustworthy over and over and over and over and over again. And guess what? Because no one's perfect, it means when you screw up, you handle that in a godly way. You prove trustworthy. You prove trustworthy that you're going to provide a meal. You prove trustworthy that you're going to provide care and love and warmth. You prove trustworthy that you're going to provide for their basic needs. And in the really big things, you prove what it looks like to come back and repair brokenness in relationship. It is a daily long process. If you read Genesis 3, you read something that theologians call the fall with a capital F. It's the fall of humankind into sin. The fall makes the world a spiritual orphanage. Now, getting adopted into God's family is a super joyful delight. This new reality exists. We have it made. And yet, it's not only a huge blessing, it's a huge adjustment. And it takes time for souls who are spiritual orphans, to grow and learn to trust and to begin to live in a family setting under a God who cares for them and will provide for them versus an institutional setting. Now watch this. When we stress as God's children and pursue as God's children and scheme to get a little bit more ahead like the rest of the world, we are living like we are still spiritual orphans. When we self-soothe, even though God says, stop doing that, that's injuring yourself. And we don't receive the comfort from God, but we receive comfort from another source. We are living like we're still spiritual orphans. We must still believe that it's up to us. We must still believe that no one is looking out for number one except number one, except me. God wants you free from hoarding. God wants you free from self-soothing. God wants you free from worry. Parents, I want you to go with me on a little trip in your imagination. You're at a playground. And you overhear your own child voicing their concern for what he's going to do for dinner tonight. He goes on to tell this little playmate on the playground, he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got a birthday party tomorrow at three. I have no idea how I'm going to get there. And furthermore, traffic at this point is going to be a bear. I think we need to get going soon. Your child's five years old. Is that honoring or is that dishonoring to you as a parent? Thank you. That's weird. That's super, super weird. You would hear that and not go, oh, my little Johnny. What a gem. I'm doing such a good job. That brings, that would bring shame and question marks on what kind of home life does this five-year-old have if they're stressing these kinds of things. My kids regularly come. We have all varieties of levels of worry in our home. We have some that want to know the nitty-gritty detail. You know what I tell my kids sometimes? I say, you're a kid. Go do kid stuff. Like there's coming a day when you will have to worry how much something costs, what time something closes, how much time it gets somewhere. That's all adult stuff. 
I promise you, you'll have your day. Right now, you're a kid. Go be a kid. Go just do kid stuff. Leave that to me. God already knows your needs. We're to be the kid. We're to let him parent. Now, this may be true in some of your lives. Maybe some of you will have to imagine this. But if your father left you when you were young, and you only saw your father periodically growing up, and every time you got together, there was a you know, weird little exchange with you. And as you parted, if your father turns to you and says to you, do you need anything? That one simple, single question would make you feel a certain way. Just in your own mind, how does that make you feel? How does that land on you that dad says that to you? Here's what I think. I think if I were in that situation, and praise God, I didn't have a father that left me. But I think in that one question, here's what that would stir up in me. That one question would reveal the poverty of relationship I have with this man. It would reveal that this guy understands he should be taking care of me. I'm the kid. The poverty of relationship would come out because of this. He wouldn't know what I need. A loving, attentive, present father already knows what you need. He doesn't need to ask you, do you need anything? What's the answer? Of course! I need a world of stuff that you haven't given me yet. I need a world of stuff coming up ahead. Where do you want me to start? That's the real answer. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your father already knows your needs. I have to confess, I'm still growing in this. We had Monday off a couple uh, last week for Veterans Day. And we took our kids up to the San Francisco Zoo. We're walking and we're trying to gather information of who wants to go where and factor that into our schedule. And I turn to Tate. I go, Tate, you want to go check out the Bug Museum? Tate says, Dad, don't you know that I don't like bugs? And then it dawned on me. I thought, that's right. I was going off this idea that most all of my kids love the Bug Museum. You see, a summer ago, we were camping, and there were bugs the size of my face all over the walls in the bathroom. Do you know how many accidents we had while camping that summer? A lot. Because Tate was insanely freaked out by it. We developed a little habit on that camping trip that dad or someone would go in, clear all the bugs out, come back and say, it's all safe, Tate. We'd come in. You need to relax to go. So he had to relax. We spent a lot of time in that bathroom. I know it well. Tate hates bugs. He's deathly afraid of them. Dad, that's the last place I would want to go, actually. We didn't visit the bug museum. You see, that was a dad who thought institutionally, my kids generally like the bug museum. Tate doesn't. You know, it's so powerful, friend. God not only made you, he made you for himself. He knows all your quirks. He knows all your weird little dislikes. He knows when something's totally safe, but it doesn't feel safe, so he doesn't take you there. God knows your needs before you do. Here's the solution to it. Ready? Verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fall or fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You want to walk free? from the warping and slaving power of wealth and worry, you do it by keeping in step with the Spirit. It's a daily thing. You know where the Spirit will lead you? The Spirit will lead you to a king and a kingdom. That will be your focus. The Spirit will lead you to a life of sharing. Let me close quickly, and band, you can make your way to the front. Here are some handles for you in regards to wealth. You want to develop a life of dependence? Weed yourself off hoarding by sharing. Here's a really practical 
thing. Sell one item this week and go find someone needy to give it to. See what God does in that one exchange. Secondly, stop building barns. Set an enough level and then live to it. Do the hard, joyful work of stewarding all that's beyond that enough level in sharing it with other people. Remember our community garden that we had here in yesteryear? Remember what we did with that? Clink and I decided, we said, wouldn't it be cool to, to challenge the people who own the box to say, what if, we, what if we lived by a reverse tithe of this? What if we kept 10% of the produce, of this marvelous produce that came from it? And what if we sought to give 90% of it away? That was hard, joyful work. I still remember Pete's on Camden Avenue. I have a bag of freshly picked lettuce. It's wonderful, glorious, grown by hand. It has a little tag on it, you know, lovingly given to you by, by Neighborhood Bible Church. And I'm chasing this older couple out at Pete's. I'm like, this is going to go bad. I have to give this away tonight. Led to a lot of great conversations. It led to a lot of awkward conversations. It led to one arrest. But all in all, it was super powerful. Finally, attempt things that are bigger than you. You guys know our family story. Our family story is adoption. Adoption was way bigger than us. God stepped in and provided. For some of you, it's a business dream. For some of you, it's a ministry idea. For some of you, it's living so radically simply that you would depend on God in a way that shocked your neighbors, friends, and family, and they would call you unwise. God will block it or he'll bless it, but attempt things bigger than you. When it comes to worry, develop your life of trust by doing this. What's the Lord's Prayer teach us? Hallowed be your name. Start with the king. Your kingdom come. Set all your priority on, on, on king and kingdom. And then give us this day our daily bread. See how those tie together? Don't start with daily bread. Don't start with your needs. Start with king and kingdom. What if number two, we acted on faith. Watch this that you can actually worry about nothing at all. That you can actually bring every need to God in prayer. Just begin living that by faith. And finally, this is mapped out for you in your community questions, but I think so many times God wants us to hit stop on the classroom. This is classroom. And he just wants to take us on a field trip. You will complete the lesson. You will further the lesson by stopping memorizing the promises of God and opening your eyes and looking to see how the promise is fulfilled. So schedule a field trip to walk through a field and listen to the tune of birds. That's it. You ponder that, you sit with that, you really think with that. It will change your life. God, we need your help in this. We freely confess that we regularly are ensnared by the truths that you preach against in this passage. Thank you for your loving leadership. Thank you for your attentive, knowledgeable parenting. God, I thank you how you can take today's sermon, today's service, and massage it into each individual soul that's here if they're willing. God, we love you. We trust you. Amen. Amen.